Hey Kingdom Roots friends, Chaz here. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you are doing well. If you're listening to this right around the time that it drops, it means you're probably in the middle of Christmas craziness, uh, running around getting maybe last minute presents or um, things together for Christmas. And so I'm really grateful that you carved a little bit of time out to join us and listen to today's podcast. Wanted to let you know that we are rebroadcasting a conversation that Scott and I had a while back about the real story of Christmas. So I'm looking at it more than just the hallmark and commercialized version a lot of times that we've made Christmas into, um, to look at what was really the first Christmas all about and its meaning and significance. So I um, really think you'll enjoy our conversation and wanted to let you know next Thursday we're going to be taking a break and not going to be having an episode of Kingdom Roots, but we're going to be coming back on January 4th and 11th with a two-part episode on uh, answering the questions on the atonement that many of you had from our webinar that Scott and I did a couple weeks back. So you won't want to miss that. Make sure you subscribe if you haven't done so already, but we'll be back for that. And um, also, if you'd like to watch that webinar before, just so you kind of have better context and um, know what Scott shared, I'll include a link to that replay in our show notes. But I'm so grateful again um, to have you a part of our Kingdom Roots community and joining us today. And hope you're having a wonderful Merry Christmas time, or maybe if you're listening after Christmas, you had a Merry Christmas. Um, But thanks so much for joining us today. Here's our episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast, a conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on our podcast, we have a conversation about the real story of Christmas. Well, Scott, uh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. All the lights are out and, and shining. And here in the Chicago land, it is really cold. It's been freezing lately, hasn't it? Yeah, and it's it's uh, it has been cold. The Christmas lights are out. We have our Christmas tree up. And uh, what I've noticed uh, is that the temperatures are are planned, are predicted the middle of next week to be sub-zero. Yeah. So for all our students at Northern Seminary who have migrated here from Southern states, uh, two of whom I know who've migrated here from Hawaii, uh, they they could experience the reality of Christmas time weather in Chicagoland. Bless their hearts. Yeah, it is something else. You know, I maybe we have some some listeners in Hawaii who uh, we could do a, like a podcast on location, a recording in Hawaii. How's that sound? <laughs> I could go for that. I, I could, could go for that for the whole month of well, all of December, all of January, and all of February. We could put up a little bit of slushy snow in March here. Yeah, I I agree. So you heard our, our challenge. If you're out there in Hawaii, invite us. We'll be there really quick. <laughs> so, well, we got an important conversation here to, to get to in the real story of Christmas. You know, uh, I mean, like so much of the, I guess, cultural narrative and, and understanding of the Christmas story is, you know, what Hallmark makes it out to be um, uh, of, yeah. of everything with the nativity and, uh, and, and all of those things. What do you think, Scott, are the biggest um, common misconceptions when it comes to the Christmas story? 
Well, I mean, the first thing I'd want to say, Chaz, is, okay, we have a, we have a Christmas holiday in the Western world, uh, mostly among Christian nations or formerly Christian nations, and that's the way it is. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a syncretism of, of the original Christmas story and gift-giving with Father Christmas uh, in Germany and Charles Dickens's Christmas Carol and doing good for the poor and then all our families and holidays all rolled up into uh, meals and cookies and Christmas trees and presents and everybody getting together and having a great time and some families really struggling because of the tensions and the divorces. Uh, all these things are a part of Christmas. And I, I don't really want to spend my time critiquing what people do for Christmas or making them feel guilty or bad right. that they have presents under their Christmas tree. I, I think, okay, that's fine. But at the same time, as Christians, we want to we want to be able to peer into the first century's actual world of what the first Christmas was actually like. And so I believe that we can combine the two. Uh, I know as I've gotten older, it's far less about all the Christmas trees and, and the presents and far more about families getting together and uh, celebrating uh, throughout the entire month of mm -hmm. Advent and Christmas the greatness of the Christian story and the gospel. So I'm, I'm fine with, uh, with doing both. But, but uh, Chaz, you know, you've asked. I've got a long introduction to answering your question. <laughs> Reminds me of the time uh, Casey Stengel was asked a question at the, with the uh, New York Mets, I believe, and he went on for 45 minutes. And then the, the, the reporter said, Mr. Stengel, would you answer my question? He says, I'm, I'm getting there. So, all right. So at any rate, I'm, uh, uh, I think we need to peer back into the first century to see what the first Christmas was actually like. Because it is not until we see that social reality that we genuinely perceive the meaning and significance of Christmas. So let's, let's begin with this. Christmas begins not only with Israel's story, but with oppression, with the Roman Empire and its imperialism, uh, pressing against the ordinary people and especially the poor. It then gets connected to two people who evidently are poor, Joseph and Mary. And we know this because they were only able to offer two turtle doves when they ransomed their son or redeemed their son back uh, to their own home. Uh, in Luke chapter two, so we have poor people. Now, now let's let's look at this in some very particular ways, and I'd like to look at three characters. We can look at Joseph, and then we can look at Mary, and then we can look at Jesus, and we have to perceive their social status. All right, I'm going to begin with Joseph, even though uh, it it. You need the Mary story in, in part to get this. Joseph, according to Matthew chapter 1, was considered someone who would be called in the Hebrew world or the Jewish world a tzaddik, and that is someone who is righteous. Someone who is righteous knows the Torah, knows the interpretations of the Torah called halakot, and he observes those. 
So Joseph is an observant Jewish conservative. Uh, he's one who would be um, uh, strict in his, and rigorous, probably, in his observance of the law. He knew all the interpretations. Now, Joseph, Joseph hears a story. We don't know how, but I like to imagine that he and his buddies, his buddies Shmuley and Reuben, were sitting in their back of their home with their feet in the mikvah. They didn't actually do this. We'll call it a sacred jacuzzi. <laughs> they didn't sit around with their feet in the mikvah. But, uh, and they're kibitzing about the Torah and the Halakha and about Israel and griping and whining about Rome's oppression and taxation and the burden of life in Galilee in the first century. When he is somehow informed that his in his uh, fiance Mary is pregnant. What does Joseph do? Joseph, because he's a Torah observant tzaddik, immediately goes to the Old Testament uh, in his mind, and he knows the options: is that Mary was either seduced, in which case she's an adulteress, and he would have to divorce her. And she could suffer capital punishment, though that was usually circumvented in different ways. Or she's been raped, in which case, you know, probably a Roman soldier is involved. And this was the early Jewish myth about uh, Mary's conception. But at least Joseph wonders who has done what and why. And at the very minimum, Joseph, as a tzaddik, has now been disgraced and shamed in public because he has a girlfriend, what we would call a girlfriend, but he has a fiance who is now pregnant and he's not responsible for it. So Joseph immediately makes a decision to divorce her privately. Now this shows that he's somewhat of a compassionate man, that he decides not to go public with this, he decides not to shame his family and her family in public. He decides to take care of this discreetly. But the decision that he makes is that he's going to have to divorce her and put her behind him because she shamed him. You know, Joseph, one of the things I think yeah. is interesting about Joseph is uh, he doesn't have any any speaking parts in the, the pageant. Like, he, there, there's no actual quotes or, or words from him. Do you think that's just, uh, just kind of something that happens, or is that specific and important to the story? Well, it's important to the story because that's the way the story is told. But, um, you know, there's not a whole lot about Joseph in the Gospels. He disappears, and the, and the parent that gets all the attention is Mary, and she does all the talking, which might say something about her personality. <laughs> But the uh, the the point that I yeah I I he's silent he, he's sort of like Adam in the Garden of Eden mm. um, yeah I I don't know what to make of it I I wouldn't make I don't make I never have made much, I've never made anything of it uh, I think that the a, a very discreet way of describing the situation is as Matthew tells us about this conversation with, with an angel and and the angel basically tells Joseph you know I know I know you're a solid Sadiq, I know you follow Torah and Halakot, and I know uh, your reputation is going to be ruined, and I know your status is going to be de-elevated, uh, but I know uh, that this is what God wants for your life. And so Joseph, um, amazingly, graciously, compassionately, uh, 
resumes his relationship with Mary and decides to marry her and, and proceeds forward uh, to name the baby. And that makes the baby his son. All right. So that uh, this, this is, a, yeah, this, this is Joseph. But here, here's the point. For Joseph, Christmas meant the day that he lost his reputation. For Joseph, Christmas meant the day that he began to suffer in order to be connected to Joseph, I mean, to Jesus and Mary. For Joseph, Christmas was the day that uh, his entire relationship to, the, to his world of Nazareth and the surrounding community was completely altered. So uh, this is a part of the, of, the, of the Christmas story, I think, that's often neglected, which, which leads us uh, to one that is not neglected as much, but still, especially among Protestants, is largely ignored, and that's the story of Mary. So here is, uh, uh, it's pretty standard to say that Mary was about 14 years old, because on the basis of the evidence that we have, uh, most Jewish girls uh, who were who matured quicker than modern-day adolescents, most Jewish girls, young women, were married in their uh, early teenage years, you know, anywhere from 13 to 17 or so. And sometimes people got married later. But it is pretty normal to say that Mary was a young woman, and uh, we'll go along with it because it's just the weight of the tradition. Mary is visited by an angel who, who basically tells her these things, that uh, you're going to have a baby, uh, you're going to have a baby as a result of the Most High overshadowing you, which is an indication in Luke's gospel that she will conceive without uh, sexual intercourse and she will find herself pregnant. Um, and then it's also said that the baby who is born will be the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. He will be uh, a descendant of David who will rule the throne of Israel forever. Um, and so here Mary is a young girl um, out of wedlock, discovers to be pregnant as a result of a divine action. And, and the great, I think one of the great moments of Christmas is the moment when, when Mary says, um, uh, we have in the in typical translations, may it be to me according to your word. But Mary here is surrendering to God but at the same time, surrendering to what she knows God is about to accomplish through her son. And even though she is not yet married, technically, and has not yet consummated that marriage, and she surrenders, she knows that all her dreams for Israel and for herself will be accomplished. So I believe we need to translate that may it be to me according to your or to your word, as a little bit more than a passive, pious, pensive surrender into an excited commitment and almost a radical um, surging forward worth, okay, we've all been waiting for this day. If God, this is how you want to start Christmas, I'm all for it. Let's get going. Uh, let's roll. And I think that's the personality that we see in Mary as the text of Luke, a little bit in Mark, text of, Mark, uh, of, of John, reveals. This is a woman who is 
simply cannot be reduced to a stereotype of a pious, uh, pensive woman who seems always to have closed lips and uh, sort of pious, soft, uh, contemplative eyes, Mm -hmm. but rather a woman with a lot of courage, a lot of hope and excitement that her baby, let's just say this, if you're a 14-year-old suffering in oppression and poverty, and and you're told that your son is going to be the Messiah because of a, a visit from an angel, I think you'd be excited and ready to talk and yeah. tell everybody that we're gonna we're gonna take over. We're yeah. not going to be suffering from Herod any longer. So I I like to describe this as a 14 year old girl going toe to toe and nose to nose with Herod the Great, and she did it fearlessly. So. Christmas yeah, I, I love I love how you you focus that in on the surrender. I think that's so important. But and it not being just the like something that's that's totally uh, out of a place of weakness and a, a place yeah, of, yeah. of anything like that. But it's of confidence and the fact yes. of how she's believing God is moving through their current situation and what He's promised yeah. her and and who He's promised through her will come in the the person of Jesus. And that's it is right. take surrender. It is it is difficult. I don't you know we're not underestimating that at all but it's uh it's surrender with confidence in the power of how god's working yeah and i think i think that's what we have to see in in the mother of jesus mm-hmm. uh and i think that's the character that we find as the pages unfold but l- let's think that this is christmas you know mm-hmm. here's here's joseph a man who has lost his status mm-hmm. as a tzaddik in the jewish world because he's chosen to marry a pregnant woman out of wedlock Nobody's going to believe this story that this was an immaculate, you know, that this was not an immaculate, uh, that this was um, a virgin uh, conception of a, a virginal conception. No one's going to buy into this sort of thing. So, so therefore, they could go ahead and believe this, and maybe over family dinners they can talk about it and be fully confident of what God's doing. But that's not going to change the public reputation. Joseph has lost his status. And Mary has gained a reputation as an adulteress. Uh-huh. And she's not coming forward with who the guy was. Yeah. Well, of course, she's coming forth with the idea that it was God. But if nobody's buying it, then they're all making up the story. And that's why in the Gospels, we have in Mark chapter 6, we have a, we have a statement uh, that they, the, the, uh, Nazareth, the people from Nazareth say, isn't this the son of Mary? Now, that is probably a slur. Normally, you would say, isn't this the son of Joseph? But no, they say the son of Mary, because this is the man whose mother um, will not fess up to premarital sexual intercourse and pregnancy. So therefore, he's the son of Mary. So this is the uh, this is uh, this is very important, I think, to understand the social condition of the first Christmas. So a man who's lost his reputation a woman who's gained a reputation. Mm -hmm. And now we get to Jesus. If you in the first century are born of an illegitimate marriage or born outside of of a normal marriage, then you are an illegitimate son. The Hebrew word for this is mamzer. Now that is translated into English as illegitimate child, illegitimate son, or the more uh, risky word, is bastard. This is exactly the social status of Jesus in the first century. 
That's why in Mark 6, 3, they call him the son of Mary. And in John chapter 8, you know, we are not illegitimate, uh, is a slur, is a slam against Jesus. So the social status of Joseph is he has has lost his status and reputation. Mm -hmm. Mary has gained a reputation. And the Messiah enters the world in a social condition of being seen as illegitimate. Jesus grows up in, in northern in Galilee. He grows up in Nazareth. And uh, technically, if he's looking for a, a, a marriage partner, if Joseph and Mary, if Joseph is still around, if Mary is the only one, they're looking for uh, a woman for him to marry. That would be normal. And he could only marry, according to Jewish law, as I understand it, mm-hmm. he could only marry a she-mamzer. He could not, the, the, a normal Jewish family would never have given their daughter to uh, Mary and Joseph or just to marry, to marry Jesus because he was an illegitimate, uh, illegitimate Jewish child. So the first Christmas, Chaz, yeah. is this extraordinarily strange combination of Joseph, a man who lost his righteous standing in the Jewish uh, society, Mm-hmm. A woman who gained the reputation as an adulteress in Jewish society and a son who would forever be seen as an illegitimate child. Mm-hmm. And that's the first Christmas story. And that preaches and that connects to our world, that God has identified with us in the depths of our sin, in the depths of our social dislocations, in the depths of false accusations. God has come to us in that environment, and he has redeemed us from that environment, and he can turn those kinds of social conditions into the greatest movement in the history of mankind, the Christian gospel. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to, to preach there, Scott. I, I like it. Um, so, you know, we believe and know this, this Jesus, the baby who was born in this unusual situation and circumstance would become you know, what we put our faith in as the Messiah and Lord and, and King of the world. Um, but as you said, th- this was a very unlikely way for the King of the world to be brought into the world and uh, and to be born. Why do you think God did that? I mean, you kind of mentioned it, I think, a little bit already, but that, that this is the way that God comes into the world just seems so backwards unless you know the rest of the story. You know, that's a fair question. You know, we can't, uh, we can't probe the mind of God in areas we don't know. Uh, but I, I would say John Goldengay, uh, one of my favorite professors, of Old Testament. He's at Fuller Seminary. John Goldengay in his new book has said something like, uh, God has always been the kind of God who would die for us on the cross. Mm. Well, you go, wow, okay. Oh, so he, he's making this connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament so that the, the crucifixion is not just such a shocking thing. Mm-hmm. It is well, yeah, that's the way God seems to have acted in the past in such strange ways. Uh, it makes it makes me think that the short stories of Flannery O'Connor, which are always so shocking and weird and, uh, you know, almost revolting, you turn away and you say, how can you see that as grace 
And then you realize that's exactly what she's trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I would say the God of the Old Testament has done some mighty strange things in making himself visible and present in the people of Israel in such weird things as a mobile tabernacle, mm-hmm. a smoking pot, pillars of fire and clouds, mm-hmm. and um, and that he reveals his grace through a sacrificial system that transforms and transforms instead of sacrificing first child, male child in the ancient world, the Israelites only wounded their child through circumcision. Uh, all these sorts of things are typical. So I would say uh, that uh, a good reading of the Bible and understanding the God of Israel, you would say, well, this is just like God to do something this wild and crazy and yet at the same time it is so transformative and so relevant and such a connection with the sorts of lives that we actually live that i would say that this connection to joseph mary and jesus and their social status is a perfect example of the kind of grace that god works in this world and always has yeah, and like, you know, central to that and the way that the theological word that we use to explain that that God with us is that uh, of incarnation. And that's really, you know, what Christmas is all about. Oh, what is it that we really need to know about the incarnation, do you think, to truly understand and celebrate Christmas for all that it's worth? Well, let's start with, uh, with, with the point that we've just made, is the incarnation is an illustration that God becomes like us and with us by becoming one of us. So you ask the question, which kind of us would God become? Well, that's a good question. Is he going to become a king? Uh, Is he going to become royalty? Is he going to become wealthy? Is he going to become the landowner who looks over his estate all the time? No. Uh, God identifies with humans in their depths. He chooses the poor of backwater Galilee, and he chooses bad reputations to get his movement going. So I think that the incarnation is, first of all, an illustration of God entering into our depths, our depths of social dislocation, and our depths of sin, and our depths of need. Um, And this is why the Apostle Paul, in the great hymn of Philippians chapter 2, can say that he he descended into the, uh, he, he came to us even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yeah. So the second thing I would say about incarnation is he became who we are so that we might become what he is. Mm-hmm. This is what Morna Hooker, a great New Testament professor at Cambridge, as the Lady Margaret uh, Professor of Divinity for many, many years, called the Great Exchange. The great interchange, she uses uh, this word uh, more precisely than I did. And it is this, is that he becomes what we are. He enters into our world, but he doesn't enter into it just as a way of saying, you see how nice I am and you see how gracious I am. I'll I'll come where you are Mm -hmm. and uh, we'll meet and have coffee at your poor little hovel Mm -hmm. rather than in the temple and the royal palaces. No, no. He does that so he can take us from our hovels and from our huts and from our hillbilly status 
and bring us into the royal uh, setting and, and bring us to the banqueting hall in his own palaces. So therefore, I would say that the incarnation is not only the identification of God with us uh, and in our actual conditions, but at the same time, it is a redemptive move on his part so that he might lift us to be in his presence. So incarnation is the deep theme of Christmas altogether. Uh, but it has uh, we have to we have to understand its social coloration in order to get the meaning of Christmas right. Yeah, and this season you mentioned it earlier in in the podcast about this being uh, the season of Advent, and I feel like you know growing up in my evangelical Christian church, I, I really had never heard or understood this concept of, of Advent until I was uh, older and uh, further along in my faith, and um, I, I feel like yeah, I always knew Christmas was coming along the way, and this is what it's about and what it's for, but this season of Advent really being intentional on. Um, waiting and preparing for this arrival uh, seems really important in the life and rhythm of the church. What are things, I think we're a couple weeks in already to Advent, that you think we as a church can be preparing for? What benefits can we come uh, can, can come from us during this time of Advent? You know, Chaz, I grew up as you did. And I remember thinking, what do you mean you're waiting for Jesus to come? He came in, you know, uh, whatever date, let's say 4 or 6 B.C., depends how you date uh, the birth of Jesus. Um, and the early Christians who dated uh, the years got it wrong. Uh, but so he wasn't born on 0 A.D. All right. So I always we were always kind of we weirded out as Baptists as to why people were waiting for the coming of Jesus. And I remember people having some of our friends had Christmas crushes in their house and on tables and they didn't put Jesus out until Christmas Day, which I always thought that's kind of being a little too literal or something. Well, uh, as I've grown in my faith, as you have, Chaz, uh, one of the things you realize is that Israel, Israel was given by God a calendar to relive its formative experiences and moments and redemptive events. And that is, Israel every year went right through the major events from Rosh Hashanah all the way through Pentecost. They went through the events that formed them the Exodus, they went through Passover, uh, they go through Yom Kippur, uh, they celebrate the return, uh, the return into the temple uh, on Hanukkah as, as time goes along. And the early Christians, very cleverly, but profoundly, biblically, chose to begin to relive the uh, in the church's calendar the life of Jesus. So Advent is the beginning of the year in the church calendar. It does not begin January 1st. The church calendar begins uh, weeks before Christmas. Four uh, weeks before Christmas, they begin to celebrate Advent. And this is a time when we re-experience the birth of Jesus. And then we go through some parts of the life of Jesus. And then we go through Holy Week, where we relive the last week of Jesus, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. 
and then we relive Pentecost, and then throughout the year we celebrate ordinary time. If this is done in faith rather than rote and just uh, routine um, repetitions, which we call vain repetitions, if this is done in faith with an alert mind, we can be spiritually formed to conform ourselves to the life of Jesus, which is what sanctification and Christ-likeness is all about. So Advent is the time when we enter back into the first century experience of waiting for the Messiah to come because we've longed. We sing the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is an Advent song longing for the coming of Emmanuel. He has come, but we celebrate that coming by reliving into that experience so that we are formed by the very life of Jesus. Yeah, you explained so well how how important this season is for the church and, and why it is so important in, in the way that it is. And I think what's fascinating is this time of year is one of those times, I think you include Christmas and Easter, that people who have, for whatever reason it may be in their life, have strained and have distanced themselves from God and and. It just seems like this season, for whatever reason it is, there's a willingness, there's an openness um, to maybe investigate spiritual things again. And maybe they're the roots of faith for the first time or, or that they've had before in their life or really faith for the first time. And so it's really a cool opportunity too, I think, to be able to embrace um, people and, and share them the most important message that we truly have as followers of Jesus. You know, our, our nation went through convulsions the last 18 months to two years over an election. Mm. And um, there are many people who've barely been jostled by this. Yeah. In fact, they've been more than jostled. They've been completely turned inside out and left wondering, depressed. Uh, and this is a good time for the church to focus its message on the coming of the world's true king, yeah. the world's true ruler, and, and to call people to say, here's a better way. This is a way that leads beyond and above Donald Trump, the president-elect, above and beyond um, the one who lost, Hillary Clinton, above and beyond our, our president right now, our present president, uh, uh, Barack Obama. So they'll say that this could be a time when we could celebrate the world's true king and refocus, recalibrate our attention on God's uh, work in this world, and maybe instead of losing hope on the basis of elections, people can find hope on the basis of the uh, resurrected Messiah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, any closing thoughts on the real story of Christmas and how we can really allow that to take root in our lives? Yeah, let me emphasize again that I have no desire to critique the colors of red and green for Christmas rather than the blue and purples of the church calendar. I have no desire to critique people who are celebrating Christmas and buying presents and putting them under a tree and drinking wassail and having turkey and, and having a wonderful uh, meal with their family. Uh, I have no desire for any critique of that. I think it's probably good for the American economy to have uh, Christmas. But at the same time, as Christians, I hope that we would see alongside that and above that and below it and beyond it, that we could see that the, the reason for the season uh, for us 
is because God has entered into our form and he did a scandalous act of identifying himself in and with a man who lost his righteous reputation, a woman who gained the, uh, a bad reputation, even though the truth of the matter was that it was a virginal conception and a son who would be illegitimate in, in social eyes, but that God redeemed those situations and turned them socially into a revolution that brought redemption for the entire world. And the church will be celebrating Christmas throughout the entire world because of that revolutionary act of God on the first Christmas. Well, thanks for joining us today on our conversation on the real story of Christmas. We hope it's helpful for you as um, you, you participate in this season of Advent and waiting and preparation for the coming of Jesus in our world. And uh, we're so thankful that you um, are, are able to, to listen and share and engage with us uh, on this podcast. And uh, we look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Now.